Hey, everybody. Welcome to Ask a Leader. I have uh, on uh, this August 12 edition of Ask a Leader a delightful show where my guests are going to get the whole hour. But before we do that, I want to just let you know yesterday's roundtable concerning the earthquake hazard mitigation was as guest Lisa Grant Ludwig has had advertised. Actually, it was even more edifying on a good many levels. For one, this distinction made between earthquake prediction and earthquake forecasting. Uh, I will uh, leave you to the UCI Public Health website that's carrying the documents that were presented yesterday by everybody, including my warrior, earthquake warrior heroette, that heroine that is uh, Dr. Lucy Stone from Jet Propulsion Laboratory and USGS, that she was awesome. And I think the biggest takeaway I got from that from her was, folks, if we don't have six months supply of water in our house, we're going to we're going to just have to leave when the big ones happen, or big one. Well, now for today's program. The whole hour is devoted to Los Angeles filmmaker Sara Aguilar and her mother, act, uh, mother activist and writer and educator Rosana Perez, who have been collaborating on a documentary about the Salvan diaspora, who would uh, better be disposed uh, uh, to explain... Uh, the phenomenon of Central American border crossings and these two involved committed women. We'll be right back. I'm going to bring on their experience. They're trying to call me and we're trying to get them back. Be right back, folks. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I want to make sure we'll do a quick sound check. Rosanna and Sada, you're you're both there. Yes. And Sada. Yes. Okay. Good morning. Those are the voices, folks. We've been waiting for, and I'm going to quickly say now, for over two years, I've been working on getting those voices here. Welcome back to the show. The my guests today are mother and daughter pair. They're originally from San Salvador. The capital of El Salvador, Rosana Perez, and her daughter, Sarah Aguilar, whom repatriated to the United States in 1983. And everybody, as we talk about the, these decades and development here, it's all relating to what's happening now in Central America. And I want everybody to think about the continuation of the, all of these sagas collectively. When Rosana arrived in LA, she joined the Solidarity and Sanctuary Movements to stop the war in El Salvador. She helped to co-found El Rescate and Clinica Monsignor Romero, a, a name that w has gone down history. Uh, uh, he was sacrificed at the altar, literally. In 1999, Rosana Perez co-founded the first Central American Studies program in the nation at Cal State University at Northridge, where she taught experimental courses. And after 20 years of community work, she returned to school and completed her BA in English and Literature from Cal State University Northridge. Uh, that was in December 2009. She then earned her master's degree, finished it this last spring, in compared literature, English, and Spanish. She currently works at Children's Institute, Inc., where she supervises the adult programs. Uh, at this uh, this organization, she, they, the, the uh, Children's Institute, Inc., uh, services are provided to children and families which have been exposed to domestic or community pro, uh, violence. 
Look for Rosanna's book, Flight to Freedom, the story of Central American refugees in California, published in uh, with the Arte Publico Press in 2007. Rosanna Perez has been a guest on many outlets, including Radio KPFK. Rosanna's daughter, also t uh, online with us, uh, Sarah Aguilar, as I alluded to earlier, was born in El Salvador and raised in Los Angeles. She earned her B a Bachelor's of Arts in World Arts and Cultures and her master's degree in education at UCLA. Sarah taught in elementary school in the Pico Union and Rampart neighborhood for 11 years. Currently, she is a documentary filmmaker telling the stories of community empowerment through video. Her works challenge the images of Latinas on film and highlight the contributions that underrepresented communities provide to society at large. Over the last two years, as I said earlier, I've tried to arrange to have Sara and Rosanna on the show. It is such a pleasure and an honor to have them with us today. Today, we'll learn about their personal story, leaving a war-ravaged El Salvador, then on their documentary project, which has evolved in various ways around their prior history, then about how their struggle continues in these times in the lives of thousands of Central American refugees who come to the U.S. They, Rosanna and Sara, come to us today from Los Angeles. Rosanna Perez and Sara Aguilar, welcome to Ask a Leader. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Claudia. It's oh. really an honor. Oh, no, no, back to you. It's my honor, please. So that the smallest country in Central America, El Salvador, has been racked with social inequality as far back as the coffee being offered prosperity to a limited few, and then we speed up to uh, the where the conflict, the civil war was going on for over 12 years, where one million people were displaced out of a population of over five million. You, Rosanna, left with your daughter, Sara, in 1983, and this is a big, this is a big sweeping question of, of many different levels. So would you set the scenario with which you were contending on the familial level, the professional level, and the political level for you. And we'll start with your activism when you were just a middle school student. Uh, thank you, Claudia, and thank you for having us in your program. Um, yes, it was, I was probably 13 years old. I remember when a situation in the country was already really bad. There were a lot of strikes in part of the teachers. And our teachers in, um, middle school will let us go and for me instead of going back home I will go and accompany them to the um, marches in downtown San Salvador. Violence was escalating rather quickly and there was a big turmoil. Everyone was living in anxiety in the country and fear because um, injustice was just like you know a nightmare covering the whole nation. And we will hear the news that in the little towns there were towns were put on fire, people were being killed, and in San Salvador things were keeping kind of up to a normal situation. But it was in 1977, 1975, when a big demonstration in part of the student universities came out on the street. My oldest brother was part of that um, demonstration, and the army came in um, and shoot at people and kill different people. I remember my brother was one of the people who was taken by the police 
and um, the director of the school have to go and negotiate for um, the students to be released. They weren't released the same day until the next day. And at that point, my mom thought that he, when he graduated, he should leave the country. And he did. And, um, and where did he, he went, go, Rosanna? Excuse me. Where did your brother go? Uh, my brother, he went to Brazil. I was 16 years old at that time. And um, he left the country. He went to Brazil and stayed there. He didn't came back to El Salvador until, like, 1989, 1990, I think. And, that, and things hadn't quieted down yet. There still was... A, a peace agreement that had a peace accord that wouldn't be transacted until 92. So your brother was coming back into some dicey times in a dicey place. That is correct. And um, so the effect that that had in our family was a, a big effect because, you know, we were feeling that, well, he was leaving and we were staying in the country and hopefully things will be different. But then I graduated from middle high school and went into uh, the National University. And at that time, in 1977, the university was closed for the first time, and um, the Army took over the university. And every time that we were going in, we have to show our identification in order to let go inside to take our classes. And people who look suspect, you know, suspectful to the authorities were taking or keep right at the entrance of the university. 1980, the National University was taken by the army and occupied. And at that point, a lot of people, including some of my professors and friends, were uh, captured. And some of them um, were given back to their families and some of them disappeared. Um, at that point, no one could get into the university, and the university was basically destroyed. Different things were stolen and sell on the street. The books were burned in the library, and um, and they were shooting at the school in different departments, breaking windows and making bullet holes on the walls. So it wasn't probably until 1990 or 1993, that the university was kind of open again. So it was, you know, at that point, my husband, uh, who was a professor at the National University... That's going back to the uh, early 80s, correct? Yes. Yes, okay. Um, he was a philosophy professor there. Yes, and I'm sorry to go back and forth. No, no, because there's so many... That it happened, you right. know, it's like... in. In a fa it's a family situation, That's but at what. the same time, it is the whole historical mo moment that was happening that, you know, and how it was affecting us in that, um, in that very moment. And so he was teaching in San Miguel, and uh, he had to go to one of his meetings at the university, and he was captured. One morning he left, and he never came back. And that was on September of 1980, um, 1981. 1981. Yes. Um, <sighs> and after that, um, Sarah was already born. She was like 1981. So she was a year old. So we have to move. We were living with my mom. And that was another big, you know, impact. 
and traumatizing situation for my parents that we have to move and, and they were always concerned about where we were and all that stuff. And suddenly, 11 months after his uh, disappearance, uh, the death squads came to my friend's house where I was staying and they took me away. Yes, your your babysitter probably had uh, just couldn't hold out with what they were invariably doing to her, and she apparently uh, implicated your whereabouts. And there, then you had to, you were detained, and you were dealt with uh, in a in most unpleasant ways. This is not the kind of a radio program where we get into the sort of details, but it was yes. rough rough going. You were you were dealt with. It was brutal. Exactly, and it and it was, and the most traumatizing part was, you know, the whole fragmentation again of the family because at that point, yes. uh, Sarah has to stay with my mom while I was sent to the women's prison, and I was there for ten months. So we were in, um, and my mom was taking Sarah to visit me, you know, every Thursday when she could do it, and every uh, Sunday that was a visit. A visitation day. So after those 10 months, uh, there was, you know, the politics kept going. Amnesty International and different countries were putting a lot of pressure on the, uh, to the government of El Salvador uh, to observe human rights. And it was at that point that uh, then the president, Reagan or Bush, uh, father, they put pressure on Napoleon Duarte, who was the president at the time, yes. to give amnesty to the political prisoners. And that is how, as a token of good faith to the United States, they provide uh, amnesty to 91 women, including me, and to 600 male who were detained in uh, Mariona prison. So that was in 1983, May of 1983. My mom um, had some friends um, in, in the Mexican embassy, and that is how we got a visa to get out of the country. Okay, and that's they, good. I was wondering how that, what kind of paperwork you had at that point. Yes, and they were, the Mexican government was very open to support people who were uh, facing political problems in El Salvador at that point, and they immediately provided her with a visa for us to leave the country. That is a whole other chapter I would love to probe, but it's a it's a bit um, off the, um, the the target here what we're talking about. But that's really interesting because the Mexican government was certainly working with their own dissidents, but they were somehow uh, granting you some kind of right of pa- a passage through there. But uh, we'll we'll take that up if we have a, another chance. But what theme I want here for everybody to be noticing is there's a segmentation of a family among many families. And so that, and you're a young mother, a one-year-old that you're trying to, now she's, uh, she's about two by the time it's 1983, if I'm doing yes. my math right. So, so the segmentation of the family and the, the duress from who's ever in charge, whether it was the death squads, it was the, um, the, the local police, or in this case, we're dealing with segmentation of families in the present time with uh, cartels operating in a totally lawless way. So with this, this, this theme is very recurrent, and I want people to just listen along with those themes still ever-present in their minds. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader here on 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming all over the world on the web at KUCI.org. My guests today are Rosanna Perez and Sarah Aguilar on uh, talking about 
the Salvadoran diaspora, and we're going to get into the project, but we're not there yet, uh, the project of documenting this and how the documentary that Sara Aguilar Sorzana's daughter is working on, how that's evolved. We'll get to that. So um, I don't know, Sara, you ought to be able to say a few things right now. What do you remember of those earliest years? Do you remember when you came to Los Angeles or you just remember knocking around uh, uh, East L.A.? Um, I actually don't remember any of those things, and it's it's one of those things that, as a family, I think we've been to uh, begin to tell the story of what happened. Um, and on a recent trip to El Salvador, my grandmother uh, retells the story because every time we used to go visit when I was younger, she would tell us stories of when I was little, and um, she would tell me about the visits that we would have going to see my mother when she was in prison and. I mean, I think that as a child, it must have been very traumatic. And also, you know, I knew that it was a secret that I couldn't talk to other people about it. So she would tell stories of, you know, picking me up from the daycare, the preschool that I was going to and taking me to see her and, um, you know, having to raise my arms up for the guards to check even my diapers so that we weren't carrying anything in to see her and and not talking to anyone at the daycare about the fact that I was going to the prison to visit my mother. And so I think that being able to at least talk about it now kind of pieces more of these about the intensity of what that experience was like, because I'm sure that, that you know, subconsciously it's all there, but right. being able to actually put words to it and kind of know uh, what that was like, um, yeah, just, it, it reinforces the importance of being able to tell the story because this is something that really a lot of people have experienced. Um, but I don't, I don't remember. My earliest memories were here in Los Angeles of, you know, definitely going to marches and being at MacArthur Park and growing up in meetings, basically, with a lot of adults who were trying to change the world and they were talking about all sorts of things that I had no clue, you know, what what was in store. Well, along with that, uh, the notion that you had to disclaim that your who your mother was and uh, all that. And Rosanna, you had, um, the mother of Sarah was just talking, you had yourself to change your name. What was, what? where was that? How was that going on? Well, uh, thing is that it was for um, security reasons and to protect uh, my family in in Salvador it, it, or in, in LA or did you kept it in LA with you, it started in El Salvador it started in El Salvador okay yes because you know it was like a way to protect um my family so that in case I was captured which I was how I can protect them but you know it it, it was like um and coming to uh Los Angeles, it was the same thing since I continue joining um, the um, sanctuary and the solidarity movement, how to protect them. And it was very strange um, to have to change my name, you know, for doing something that um, was wanting to bring peace to the country, so it was until 1992 when the peace agreements were signed that I decided that I'm going to reclaim my name, and um, and I did. I wrote a little letter and sent it to friends and people in the movement, letting them know that 
this is my name and this is who I am. And so, um, and it was um, breaking with that silence because, you know, there is a whole culture of silence that was imposed to us um, during the war time. Yes, yes. And um, when it was your paperwork and uh, th- coming, your visa coming through Mexico, that was where you had your other na- your um, your change name then, and then you had so a lot of paperwork had to change besides letting friends and family know about your restoring, reclaiming your name and more voice. My papers, my papers, and all that kept as my name, Rosana Perez, but I just you know. When I talk to people, I give a different name. Okay, okay. So that, yeah, that was just like, I didn't have to show my papers to everyone, thank goodness. But whoever I have to show my papers were with my real name. But just talking to people, it was under a different name. Well, and I just want to, um, if it's all right with you, Rosana and Sara, I'm, when I was looking into what was going on, refreshing my memory about what was unfolding in the Civil War, and it was it was mean, nasty, and drawn out. And, uh, and when you're you're struggling to, to figure out what to do with your young child, your husband has disappeared, and you uh, can, uh, presume he's dead. In uh, March of 1983, the year that you're going to move out, there there were major. Uh, civil rights leaders throughout uh, Salvador that were, were, were being killed, they were being dealt with. And they're, um, I'm, I'm thinking Marianella uh, Garcia Villas and, yes, and uh, right. Malida Anya Montes. Th- these are people that were high profile, but it didn't, that the, the government didn't care that these, they were making examples of anybody who was mm-hmm. rising up against this uh, murderous machine. So I, I just want that as a backdrop. And so you are probably watching these people, these figures, and wondering, well, what's your next move if these really visible people are being slaughtered? Yes, and and you're right. Marianela Garcia Villas. She was the first um, director of the Human Rights um, Office in San Salvador, and Melida Nayamontes. Um, she was a commander of one of the organizations, the FPL, one of the organizations that formed the FMLN. And these are women who, you know, from the beginning of the struggle got into uh, do something and being active, and they were just killed. And there is impunity on that end because, you know, no one took responsibility of it, even though everyone knew that it was, part of the military, and it was part of the government doing those um, assassinations. And before that, there was Lil Milagro Ramirez, and there has been other women who have been just killed. Um, um, also women who were part of the union workers. So, um, Fever Elizabeth Velasquez, she was bombed in the... Um, office of the union so and the impunity continue and that is something that has continued after the peace agreements because in 1992 also the peace agreements were signed you know the government arena government continued for another 20 years and the poverty in the country just raised up and people were as you were saying a million half one million and a half people have left the country to different places in the world. And that was because of the violence and the impunity. 
persecution that all of us were facing. But 20 years after the peace agreements, still now the youth are leaving the country, uh, children are leaving the country, and it is due to that uh, byproduct of the war. Poverty is still the same, opportunities of jobs are lacking in the country, the violence continues, and people, of course, is going to do something in order to protect themselves and look for a safe heaven where they can live a life, quote-unquote, normal. Um, And it is unfortunate that, you know, as we are talking about the situation of fragmentations in families, it's still happening in El Salvador, and now Honduras and Guatemala, youth are coming, their children are being incarcerated. And um, it is the violence, it is the injustice, it is the impunity that these countries and the corruption in the governments that we are facing. I know that in El Salvador, Recently, there were elections and uh, Yes, I was going to ask about that. Well, we'll bring that up. Uh, well, we can talk about that now. The elections were in the spring, and the FMLN, the Farbundo Marti Liberación Nacional, that was the, it was a movement first, and then it became a political party, and that, that leader, uh, Mr. Seren, was elected in a very close race last spring. That's correct. Salvador Seren, a commander from the FDL, and he won the elections, and then there was a whole thing that Arena was calling to the army, and they were claiming that there, were, there wasn't a, a clean election. But at the end, with the intervention of the OEA, the United Nations, and many different people who were um, witnessing the elections, they accepted that. Yes. The FMLN uh, was the winner of that race. Now, there's two levels of that. Now, were you? Uh, there was a enabling legislation just this year that allowed uh, expatriates to to vote in those elections. Were you able to participate in that, Rosana? Unfortunately, I didn't know where to go and um, you know register myself to do it. But um, I'm going to follow on that. I just follow through you know the news and different things that friends from El Salvador were sending to me uh, through the Internet. Um, and the other thing is that I think it is very important for people to participate. It is a way for things to change uh, to the extension that they might change, you know. Right. So far away, it's kind of difficult to um, have an accountability to that. But still, I think it is very important it is true that the past five years, the FMLN, through uh, Mauricio Funes as a president, was uh, part of the government. Things many people criticize that haven't changed, but, you know, it is very difficult that after 188 years of military governments and 20 years of a right-wing government in a war that lasted 13 years, uh, for things to change in five years is, I think... It's a battleship to turn around. And and exactly. the death squads, I mean, they don't go away. They're, there's The death squads are around. They they might have... They were a menace that persisted and intimidated for quite a while. Did When did that... When did that drop off, if it ever did, or and was there a problem with the vacuums uh, with, uh, in, with the poverty-wrecked uh, society in Salvador that, uh, within that vacuum... That the the death squad 
affiliates got involved with the cartels. Is that what was sort of the movement there? Well, unfortunately, that is part of it. And, you know, there is uh, two parts to that. One is that the, the role that the death squads are playing on this, getting involved with the drug cartels. And the other is all the youth that were part of and are part of um, the gang um, culture here in Los Angeles and were being deported and still are being deported back to El Salvador. And they go to El Salvador and they create you know, and they have created a whole culture of gang in El Salvador. Okay. Now, the violence and the crime, you know, has increased because of that situation. And there is no one who can control that. No and, one. And there has been efforts, uh, you know, the government has, um, Mauricio Funes did something and kind of work, and the church, some of the churches in Soyapango and Mexicanos are also getting involved to see how they can help the youth to get out of that. But it is, like, uh, too difficult at this point. Wow. Is the is the church involved with helping with that, um, dealing, rectifying that vacuum, that uh, where the, the poverty, there's not uh, an educational infrastructure, and then that sort of deepens that kind of, uh, that, Poverty cycle. I mean, is the church involved with some of that, or where where is that intervention coming to to to, to provide some kind of an education safety network net uh, for for those all those children at adrift and at risk? Yes, the church, but it's not like a, a not in the national level. It is, you know, in local local levels that church has taken the initiative of doing something, creating like. Like here, you know, like uh, Father Boyles has done a bakery or some kind of store, something where the youth can learn some kind of skills instead of just being on the street. But unfortunately, that culture has, you know, penetrated society so deeply that a lot of kids don't have too many options. And then they are harassed to participate in this gang culture, and oftentimes they get killed or their relatives get killed because they are not participating into that. So it's it's a very hard situation. It's very difficult. And unfortunately, you know, they just have to leave the country on their own, and then they come to a worse situation just crossing the border here to the United States, thinking that they might find a place, a safe place, where they can support their families. That's the current time. I want Rosanna Perez and Sarah Aguilar, if we could take just a brief station break, I want people to consider then and now while we listen to a um, Silvio Rodriguez piece. We'll be back, folks, after a short break. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for staying with us. It was just too lovely that I had to make sure we uh, we brought in that sound. I th- thanks to Sara for directing me that way. It was all so beautiful. <laughs> so, um, so folks can look up Trova. 
uh, Silvio Rodriguez. He's been playing a long time, and he's been playing with uh, and uh, playing around Latin America, and they all know how to sing along with him. And we will close out with one other piece of his, uh, a live performance. So for those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader, it's my real pleasure and honor to have with us the mother-daughter pair, Rosana Perez and Sara Aguilar on Ask a Leader at KUCI 80.9 FM in Irvine and on the web streaming all over the world on KUCI.org. And so uh, we're back with the mother-daughter pair and uh, we were talking about the strife ongoing through the 12-year civil war in El Salvador. And folks, that's just El Salvador. We're not talking about what's happening in the rest of Central America. And I guess before we move and seg into the, the documentary project that Sara is totally in charge of here, I just wanted to know, because of you, you're proud natives of El Salvador, and every country in, in Central America has gone through similar and different kinds of struggles. And I, I, I don't know if uh, white bread America just sort of lumps everybody together in Central America and, and everybody just assumes you're all Mexican. What, what is that to contend with? Well, you know, there are five different, well, with Panama, six, there are five different countries in Central America. <clears throat> and each of us have their own history and culture. And just, just a little example. In Guatemala, for instance, Guatemala is a bigger country than San Salvador, than El Salvador. And, um, it has, um, 23 different indigenous communities. And then the Latinos, which are a combination of natives and Spanish people who were there and other, um, other ethnicities. So everyone has their own distinctive ways to, um, to see the world. And it is true. A lot of people always said, why, you know, um, the, five countries don't get together, and that is something that Simon Bolivar was wanting to do, not just for Bolivia, but for South America and Central America to get together and maybe creating a, a stronger economic um, system that might help to sustain the economies of the little countries. But it is difficult. It is very difficult to, um, to work on that um, end. When you know one owns country, for for instance El Salvador, we have to you know kind of get together what we have at home before we can go out and try to get everyone else together. Right. So um, it is part of a larger exercise. It's a part of being an open mind, but to have an open mind, it has to start at home. Right. And we have to you know be able to tolerate. First of all, ourselves. It's like a family. You know, we right. have differences in our families. We have to tolerate and be open to new ideas and to accept what we have. So it will be the same thing for the countries. But, you know, it sounds easy to say, and it, it is hard to practice. One other but, distinction I want to make, too, uh, was that Nicaraguans processing of their documentation to enter the U.S. because of the affiliation with the uh, the regime prior to the Sandinista regime, that, that because of that 
uh, alliance system that it gave the Nicaraguans a much more permissive entry to the United States. And because of the, uh, the lack of any affiliations with, uh, with the current, well, with the FMLN and other similar socialist or um, socialist-minded uh, movements in other parts of Central America, that there was a more restrictive kind of, of uh, permission for your incoming. In. I mean, you got the amnesty, uh, of just, but you said only 600 men and 91 women, but everybody in Central America is treated differently depending on the alliance system with the United States. So that, that made uh, things difficult. For some, in, in, in many in, that are that followed you. Well, I want to let's talk about the documentary film project. It's called Sidomino. Cido, uh, I think it's a title, a working title. And Sara, uh, as we take up the film, the working title, as I said, Sodonima. Why don't you tell us what you set out originally to make in this documentary project? Now in a production, and then we'll talk about how it's changed. Okay, so um, the working title is Pseudonimo, or pseudonym, and originally uh, it was set out, basically. It started It started many years ago, but um, I guess this particular incarnation of it started in 2008 when my mother and I, and also my um, co-director, Pete Galindo, decided to take a trip to El Salvador. My mother was getting an award, and we thought that it would be really important to document um, her receiving an award on behalf of Salvadoreños en el Mundo, or Salvadorans in the diaspora. And this is a conference that is held every year. And so we thought that, you know, it was a very important um, recognition on behalf of uh, the organization. And so we traveled to El Salvador with her, but it was... It was a very different experience than one that we had hoped for, simply because um, the program, the women's program, was basically set aside from the conference itself. It was a three-day conference, and, um, you know, Salvadorans from Spain and Australia and Canada and the United States all over were joining, um, joining here on this conference, and it felt like it was... It was not taken seriously that, you know, by my whom? mother, by by the whole, the conference as a whole, oh. it felt like the women weren't highlighted in a way that I had hoped that they would be, ah. um, and that the stories were um, kind of set aside, you know, and not given the importance that I felt that they should have been, along with the fact that some, uh, I guess, um, what would you call them, queens or young women as uh, reinas were also getting presented and celebrated in the same way as my mother and this other woman who had been doing community activist work with the indigenous populations in El Salvador. And so it just felt it was very machista. Wow. And so yeah. here's a, this is part two of of, of not recognizing women. You couldn't recognize your mother because of of the the danger she was in and keeping you out of danger, and then she's not recognized part two. I mean, it just doesn't quit, does it? Yeah, and I feel like just as a woman, it's a constant struggle where you have to put yourself out there, and, you know, if we're not recognizing ourselves, it's like we're very easily just thrown under the rug as, well, that didn't happen, you know, so it's really important for us to just... Um, 
honor ourselves and then put these stories to light because if we don't do it, then other people won't do it for us. Um, and so basically, you know, the original idea was to document this and then to kind of go and make a documentary about the community organizations that had shaped and changed policy, immigration policy here in the United States and in El Salvador. And, you know, that's still a large part of what, you know, the history of the Salvadoran community that we're definitely incorporating into the documentary, but the documentary has really transformed into much more of a personal story and putting a human face on um, on immigration, on uh, the Salvadoran experience, on uh, a woman's perspective on what it is to come to flee your country um, from a war and to make a new life and to affect change in the community where you are and also maintain connections with the community where you came from to also affect change there. So the footage, the the uh, content in your film, uh, where is it coming from? Where are you um, interviewing? I mean, your mother is probably, she's a, a central figure, is she not? Yes, she's a central figure. Um, and also, we've conducted interviews with people who have worked alongside her um, because it's definitely been a community effort. And so there's uh, Roberto Lovato, who is uh, the co-founder of Presente.org and um, a very well-known writer. We've interviewed him to gain a a perspective just on on immigration policy um, and really tying things together. He was also... Uh, the founder, alongside with my mother and the students at CSUN of the first Central American Studies program in the nation. Right. And um, we've also interviewed uh, Don Smith, who was a big leader in the sanctuary um, and solidarity movement at the time that my mother was also organizing. We've interviewed her students, or a few of her former students who um, came, who were also children when they immigrated to Los Angeles and who are now leaders as well in their communities and who went through the Central American Studies program and are, you know, just affecting change in that, in their own uh, arenas. And we've also got the poetry aspect of it because my mom is also a poet as well as an activist. And so... We've interviewed, and not interviewed, but actually have gotten footage of other poets who um, who are reading her poetry and who have also been involved in the movement, as well as archival footage from the Museo de la Palabra e Imagen, which is the Museum of the Word and the Image, which they are located in El Salvador, and they do amazing work in documenting and archiving um, just... Well, originally, radio programming from Radio Venceremos, which was the radio station, the only radio station, really, that was broadcasting uh, what was happening on the ground during the war in El Salvador. And broadcast from, where was that? They would broadcast from different locations. So it was in the mountains, or they had their own uh, portable portable, um, 
Radio broadcast, uh-huh, yeah, transmitter, uh-huh. exactly. So I want to back up here when you're talking about these uh, voices and the contributors. I imagine that you were seeing something very special happening. There may have been a lot of suppressed memories of what they endured in the struggle, and your particular uh, project might have given them uh, an opportunity to heal. Did you see that before your very eyes? Totally, totally, especially on our last trip to El Salvador. Um, it was very powerful to interview one of the members. Well, he was a, a student at the same time as my mom and my dad. And, wow. you know, the first time I met him, you know, I was so touched because I don't know very many people that knew my dad when he was alive or the work that he did. And so I asked him, so <laughs> did you know my dad and how, you know, um, how, what was he like? And it was just a very emotional moment where we basically my mother and myself and he all broke down into tears and it was it was one of those things where it felt like he was taken back to that point and it was the point where he said I didn't know him very well but during the time that I knew him it it was so intense that we got to know each other really well and you know we went back more recently to interview him and it was just, it was very powerful to hear him talk about, you know, everything that he had experienced because he has a very, uh, a story very similar to my mother's um, and one where he had to flee the country as well. And um, and you could tell that it was, it was incredibly cathartic and it was a very healing process, really for all of us. Wow. So as you're, you're now in the, the cutting, your editing, uh, your production. So do you have, Sarah, any idea when the film is going to be out? Well, I'm I'm actually, we're going to do a rough cut by the end of the year. So by this time next year, I'm hoping to have already been, you know, uh, definitely raising money to fund the rest of this project and uh, getting it out there in film festivals and having smaller screenings as well. Um, but I'm foreseeing this project to be fully completed next year. Next year. So you were uh, intimating then the distribution would be through uh, maybe the art theaters, the um, maybe churches, mosques, synagogues, uh, definitely, film yes, festivals. Definitely through universities because we definitely want this to, you know, be out there. Well, I know we're gonna we're gonna make sure Vicky Ruiz of the Latino and Chicana Studies is uh, totally aware of your work and gives UCI a, a, a forum for uh, for pseudonimo. So um, we, uh, I know we've already got that started, but uh, for those who are working with Vicky Ruiz, know that uh, we can all <laughs> make sure uh, something will work out that way here down uh, behind the orange curtain. So um, for those of you who've just joined us, we still have we just have a few minutes left with. The vaunted mother-daughter couple here, Rosanna Perez, Sarah Aguiar, um, on Ask a Leader. They're talking about now um, how the, the documentary film project that Sara is producing uh, deals with a <coughs> excuse me Salvadoran diaspora, and it is ongoing. It's wave after wave of violence shoving out <coughs> a drift. Uh, and, and threatened uh, members of Salvadoran society, and so um, I we're 
we're going to watch the um, distribution, as I said, and then you also mentioned Saura, the, and it's a lovely uh, resource. The uh, you can go on the web, folks, at Museo de la Palabra y la Imagen, Imagen, like that. Mm-hmm. So yes. uh, the word and the the picture. So you can um, there are many different. Uh, there's literature on there. There's histories, archives, all kinds of things, uh, and. Uh, the, keeping the memory of of what was going on and what what continues to go on. I guess it, always new th- materials are being put into their archives. Have you noticed? Yes, there are, and it's really interesting because they have a lot. And they also, you know, if anyone is willing to donate their own material, they're always really happy to get that because there's still so much that's being collected and so much that has been destroyed. But yes, they still and they have a very strong. Um, student population that works with them at the university, at the Catholic University over there. So In Salvador? In El Salvador, okay. yes. Okay, because it's, it's a Spanish uh, website, so, uh, or in Spanish. It's in English and Spanish, but yes, it is based in El Salvador. Okay, so that's, for anybody, there's a little tiny call to action for people that are interacting with, if they're not, if you're not uh, Salvadoran yourself, that uh, there is a, a, this project to c- keep collecting uh, your uh, your not just narratives, but just whatever you have that um, needs to be kept uh, for for our vital memories and that kind of a thing. Well, Rosana Perez and Sara Aguilar, I want to thank you both for your time today. I wish you a successful launching of your film Pseudonimo, as well as your academic and uh, your uh, all the activist enterprises. I honor what you've been doing. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Claudia. Thank you, and uh, we'll stay tuned. When that film is out, we're going to either put you on film school with uh, Mike Kaspar or back on my show. How about that? That sounds great. And if anyone wants to continue uh, keeping up with what's going on, we have a Facebook page. Yes. And it's Seudonimo, P-S-E-U-D-O-N-I-M-O, Seudonimo. Okay, and we'll we'll keep. I'll put that up on the summary. Thank you, ladies. Perfect. All the Thank best. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you very much. And um, what a, what what lives we're gonna close out with Silvio Rodriguez. Ojalá, and I hope that's okay with you. Yes. Thank you. All the best. Thank you. Buena suerte y muy muchas gracias. Ojalá que la lluvia deje de ser milagro que baja I just wanted to announce, uh, if you want to honor the work of the late James Brady, here's a step you can take today. Senate Bill 53 is legislation that would regulate sellers of ammunition and require buyers of ammunition to go through a background check before purchase. More legislative news is always available uh, at the, the CaliforniaBradyCampaign.org website. And that, folks, is all the time we've got on Ask a Leader. Next week we'll have on... Museum of Latin American Art President and CEO Stuart Ashman. He was on a couple of holidays ago, uh, winter holidays, and uh, he's going to talk about their current installation, still there till the middle of September. Cuban artist Roberto Fabelos and anatomy and uh, neo-Mexicanism too, uh, a side attraction there. It, as I said, it'll continue until the middle of September. And then the former New Jersey State Legislator Luis Manzo is going to talk about his just-released book, Ruthless Ambition, The Rise and Fall of Chris Christie. Oh, yes, I plan on taking that to a few local themes. That's right. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening. No